Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and when you do, I'm going to ask you to pray. Let's pray. Father, I ask you this morning that you would press aside all of the distractions, the lack of attentiveness that we might even bring to this service this morning, maybe a routine visit to church. Maybe we've come this morning full of burden, full of troubles that really have nothing to do with eternity, but they're pressing in, they're they're real. And in this moment, in the next few moments, we are, are going to hear from you. And we're going to hear from you, Lord, about a, a topic that is that's vital. It's hard to hear, but it makes it no less true. And um, we need to listen. We need ears to hear. I need help to to make it clear and make it plain. We we are nothing, Lord, apart from you. So bring the the ministry, the power of your Holy Spirit, and illuminate your truth. Give us eyes to see you high and lifted up, and to see ourselves rightly in light of your word, and then respond. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you probably heard by the reading of Scripture this morning, we are transitioning to a new section of Paul's letter to the the Romans. And this entire section is about the reality of of God's wrath. And... um, the topic is less pleasant from what we, we have had so far, but it's, it's almost a topic that you have to prepare yourself like we did in prayer before we, before we read it, but, it, but it's real and it's, it's true. Uh, Dr. Kent Hughes, in opening to this passage, whenever he preached it, he, he said there's, there are some, whenever they hear about the topic of this passage, that their, their sensibilities are offended and they, they don't want to hear it. Uh, the idea of God's wrath and judgment is offensive to the, to the modern man. It's, it's something that we have, we have excelled beyond in our, in our, uh, in our intellect, in our, our modernization. And that's partially because of our sin and and it's also partially because we associate God's wrath and God's response to sin with, with, with our uh, sinful expressions of, of anger, the, the anger that we see all of the time. We think that that's the way that God reacts and the way that God um, responds to, to, to us. And Dr. Hughes said, the, the only salve that I can offer to you that is, is this is not my message <laughs> It's the Spirit's message through the Apostle Paul to the church of Rome and then, and then also to us. And while it may seem like a negative topic, as I'm going to show you today and the weeks following, it's a necessary one. 
It is absolutely necessary if you want to understand the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the theme of, of Romans, the, the gospel of God's righteousness. And, and Paul is introducing that and himself to the congregation at Rome. And we saw that in verses 1 through 7, where Paul's introduced himself and the message that, that he proclaims. And, and he does that because they've never met him. And then right after the introduction, he explains the, the reason that he's writing to them in verses 8 through, through 15. He's, he's giving God's, uh, God thanks that, that the Lord is fulfilling His promise to Abraham, His promise uh, in the Old Testament to, to save the Gentiles. And he's saying, the Romans, you're proof of that. And, and I'm eager to be part of what God's doing in, in Rome. And, and he says, that I'm eager because I'm a divine debtor. I'm obligated by, by God to, to preach the gospel. And I'm obligated to preach it to, to all men, both Jew and Gentile. And, and by doing so, uh, if I preach it and I do that faithfully, then, then, then I want God to use me to add some fruit to His bounty, the, the reward that's going to come to Christ. And Paul says beyond obligated, he's, he's eager. And, and he's eager because he's not ashamed of the gospel. And that's what we looked at the last time. In verses 16 and, and 17, he explains why he's not ashamed of the, uh, of the gospel. Verses 16 and 17 is Paul's thesis of his entire letter. It's, it's his proposition statement, if you will. It foreshadows all of the major themes that he's going to cover and defend over the next uh, uh, 11 chapters. In verse 16, Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God bringing salvation to all who believe. And in verse 17, he says the gospel is the, the, the saving power of God because the righteousness of God, that's, that's God's righteousness granted to us as a gift, it's revealed by faith. At the end of verse 17, he says this truth is, is not new. Just as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Just as it's found in Amos in the Old Testament and many other places in the Old Testament, it, it's always been this way, uh, uh, which is the, the, the righteousness of God uh, is extended to us through, through, through faith, from faith to beginning to end. And, and Paul says he's eager to preach that message because in the gospel... God is, is revealing His way of righteousness, and that way is based on, on faith alone. But now Paul's going to say that's not the only reason he's eager to preach the, the gospel to them. He's also eager to preach because the message that he has is urgently needed. And that's what he starts explaining in verses 18 and what follows. Beginning in verse 18, it launches into a new section that explains mankind's, you, part of mankind, our desperate need for the message of Jesus Christ. Because the way of righteousness is not the only thing that God is revealing. God is also revealing His wrath from, from heaven. And so from verse 18... All through the rest of the chapter, all through the rest of chapter 1, all through chapter 2, and, and almost all of chapter 3, up through verse 20 of chapter 3, Paul describes how God's wrath is being revealed toward the ungodliness and unrighteousness of, of man. And, and he details why. Why is God's wrath being revealed? Why does it have to come? Or as one put it, there's the reality of God's wrath in verse 18. 
And then there's the reason for God's wrath. The wrath that's coming upon the Gentiles, the pagans. The, the wrath that's coming upon the Jews and the moral man. The wrath that's coming upon all man because all have sinned and fall short of the, the glory of God. So verses 19 through chapter 3 verse 20 is the, is the why. So after, Paul, uh, uh, after his introduction of himself, his message, and his proposition, Paul moves to the exposition and defense uh, of the gospel. And the first thing that he deals with is the need for the, the gospel. The reason Paul was eager to proclaim the good news, and the reason he rejoiced over it, is because it's necessary. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not optional. I mean, you realize that this morning. You're not just here as Christians gathered because you've chosen to be Christians. And, and there's, there are many other people uh, of different faiths this morning, the Muslims or, or, or the Jews or Hindus or whoever else it is. They're, they're gathered and they can worship their God and we can worship our God. But, but we're all just going into the same you know, giant cosmic lake in the sky. There are many paths to get there. That's not true. In fact, that's a lie from the pit of hell. The gospel of Jesus Christ is necessary because there is one God and then there's one mediator between God and all of man and all of man have sinned. And so Paul is eager to preach this gospel because it's, it's needed. Paul knows all mankind is exposed to God's wrath. We all have spiritual asbestosis. We, 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 we breathe in the toxins of, of sin, what comes out of our heart and what comes in us and how we respond to it in the, in the world today. And because of that, we're exposed to God's radiation, His, His wrath that's, that, that's there. And, and you can sense the urgency in how Paul, Paul writes. He, he, he says, I'm Paul. Here... Here's who I am. Here's my message. It's all about Jesus. And, and, and I give thanks to God. You don't know me, but God's already doing a work in Rome, and I can't wait to be part of it. And then he just launches into the, you know, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm eager to preach that because it's God's message of, of how man can be right with him through Christ from faith to faith. And, and then he immediately stops. And he says, but you must understand that the good news is because of the bad news, and you must hear the bad news. I mean, if you follow the flow of the letter, verse 18, it's like an interruption. I mean, think about it. He's talking about the gospel and how he's not ashamed of it, how wonderful it is. And then he starts talking about wrath. He starts his exposition of the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, and then he stops and and then he details the reason it's needed from verse 18 all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. And then he picks up the exposition of the gospel again back in, uh, in chapter 3, verse 21. And Paul does this because he knows unless you clearly see sin's dominating power and then God's inevitable response to it, you're not going to understand why God's righteousness can only be obtained if He provides it Himself. Um, you have to understand the wages of sin are de is death, but before you can grasp that the eternal life is the gift of God through Jesus Christ our, our Lord, or as James Moffat said, only those who are prepared to acknowledge that they are unworthy can put faith in the giver of grace. And 
That's the purpose of Romans 1.18 and what's following. It's to reveal what's going on in the world. It's to explain why there are hardships, why there are broken relationships, why maybe you're hurting this morning. It's, it's to explain why the world is in such a mess, why the world even needs a Savior to begin with. And it's not by chance or just because that's the way that it is. It's God's wrath. He is revealing it in, a, in restrained measures right now. And, and Paul hopes that, that by saying to you, that even this morning, that, that, that what you see around you, what the consequences that you sense and feel in, in your life, that that, that, that it, it will help you understand that, that you have an even greater need, a need for Christ. So you won't face the full fury of God's wrath uh, later. And that's what we find in these next few chapters. It's startling. It's, it's ugly. There's a systematic condemnation of mankind and a step-by-step indictment of, of all humanity. Romans 3.9 is the, the summary verse of this whole section. Look at Romans 3.9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged, when? Well, up through chapter 3, verse 9. We've already charged both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. What kind of sin? In what way are, are we guilty? Um, how is God responding to our sin? How bad is it? Where is His response revealed? Well, everything that Paul writes from verses 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, answers those, those questions and explains that and how it is and why it is. And, and the, I think the reality is so bad that Paul prepares us for, for these passages by, by holding up the, the torch of the gospel in verses 16 and 17. I mean, God's saving righteousness is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness that we need. And Paul is like saying here... Take this, you're going to need it where we're going. And now with that torch in hand, he, he descends into the dungeon for the next three chapters. And what awaits us down there in those three rooms is each has a man locked up with his sentence and verdict hung outside of the wall, on the, outside of the door, on, on the cell. And Paul pauses at, at each cell, brings us... and says, look at this man locked up in this room. And, and let me read to you why he's in there. And the first one is a, is a worldling or a pagan, a Gentile, a non-Jew. Somebody who wouldn't claim to, to, to believe in God. And we find in chapter 1 that Michael read for us this morning, a normal person, a person that you would probably see every day on the streets of, of Lynchburg or Seattle or, or northern Virginia. It's an agnostic. It's someone who cares little for God and even dismisses the idea of, of true religion. He could be a spiritual person. He, he may not be. He may be somebody who holds to New Age ideas. Maybe not at all. Maybe he's a humanist. But he's an idolater at heart. and His philosophy is just live and let live. Why are you telling me about about God or wrath or anything else. I mean, there's no reason to fear. Just enjoy what you want here and now. Paul says this man's facing God's wrath. Second man that he comes to, he brings us to another cell. He's, is the moralist in 
chapter 2, verses 1 through 29, the Jew. This man knows right and wrong, black and white, good and bad. He, he knows it even to the point that he judges others whenever they do wrong. person may attend church, may attend synagogue, may attend mosque. This person in chapter 2 that Paul describes, it's in the second cell, views life through a religious lens. He evaluates people of how they measure up to their standards. He knows what's moral, but he doesn't do it himself, and yet he considers others worthy of punishment whenever they, they don't do it. And Paul says this man is, is no better than the first one. He's under God's wrath as well. The, first, uh, the third person that Paul will, will show us is a combination of all men put together. The person in the third cell, he says, look at this man, he, he resembles Adam. He can come from any background, religion or lack of it. He thinks he's smart, but he's ignorant and he lacks understanding and he, and he doesn't even know he does. He doesn't care about God, doesn't seek Him. He has no interest in doing so. And he spends his days indifferent to his condition, full of sin and unrighteousness and, and evil. And Paul says all three of these people are locked up under God's righteous wrath right now. And they're waiting the full and final outpouring of that wrath, which is, which is coming one day. And frankly, you may sit there and you ask yourself, I mean, in a letter that's all about righteousness, all about Christ, all about the gospel, why does Paul have to spend that much time talking about such a topic? And I think the reason is, the reason we have to be reintroduced to the, to the concept is because when given the chance, we, we won't think of it on our own. I mean, isn't it natural to, to think of the opposite of what Paul outlines here? Our nature is to think of mankind's goodness and God's love not man's sinfulness and God's wrath. I mean, we don't naturally talk about the God who loves us in Christ is also the God who is preparing everlasting fire for those who sin against Him. It's not a topic that we enjoy talking about. And I don't blame you. I don't like talking about it either, but it's real. So you must talk about it. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you turned on a Christian radio station and heard a message about hell, or even from a pulpit. People don't like to talk about eternal fire or everlasting damnation. And yet it was a central part of Christ's preaching. What did John the Baptist come preaching? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And when the scribes and Pharisees came and submitted to John's baptism, what did he say? You brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath that is to come. And you say, well, that was John. What does Jesus preach? Immediately after his baptism and he successfully does what Adam failed to do, he's, he's pressed by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, and he is successful in the temptation. He steps forward as the substitute. He accomplishes what Adam failed to do, what you failed to do. He does it in the wilderness, accomplishing what Moses failed to do, what Elijah failed to do. And then he immediately goes to Galilee, and you know what Jesus preaches? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And the message that he's preaching is 
the Sermon on the Mount. Like Kent Hughes, uh, we wrongly think that that's incongruent with with the God that we have in our own minds who's a God of love, and and He surely surely is a God of love. I mean, we just got done seeing how His love moves Him to send His Son to die. And His Son is offered to to all men through, through the gospel. But God's wrath is also extended towards sin. And it's coming upon sinners who commit it. And it's a, a perfect and holy attribute of God. It's as much a part of God as, as His love. And Paul says you must know God is revealing both. His righteousness and His love and His wrath and His holiness if you have any hope of being saved. Because if you don't realize that you need to be saved from God Himself, then you'll see no need for Jesus Christ. And any religion will do. I mean, if the God of heaven is not angry with you over your sin, then you can turn to whatever you want to fix your life problems. I mean, your anxiety, your marriage, or your dissatisfaction, if that's all it is, then psychology will work to do that. But if there's a God, and He is our avowed enemy because of our sin, one who's storing up righteous wrath over your lust and your anger and your transgressions, then you must be saved from Him. And the only way to be saved from Him is to be saved by Him. And so Paul is writing because he doesn't want you to miscalculate who God is. And so he starts by explaining His his wrath and and why it's coming. And, And in verse 18, this summary verse, this introductory verse, he he describes four realities about, about God's wrath in, in the introduction. He says it's divine wrath. It's experienced wrath. It's earned wrath. And it's also resisted wrath. It's divine, it's experienced, it's earned, and it's resisted. Let's look at the first one. First reality is, is this divine wrath. Its source is God and it's from heaven. Look if you would at verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This verse 18 serves kind of like an umbrella. It introduces the, the topic of God's righteous wrath. It's the theme verse of What's coming? It's like a summary statement. And the first thing that Paul says about the wrath that he's talking about is, is it comes from God. Its, it's source is God. It's, it's not human wrath. It's the wrath of God. It's, it's His righteousness revealed against our sin. Just like the gospel is His righteousness revealed through faith in, in Christ. Uh, there are many perversions. You could make a, a, a much longer list than I'm going to give you this morning. Perversions and ideas about God's wrath. There's the fly off the handle uh, idea. God's like us. God just is in heaven and He just takes it and He takes it and He takes it and He finally blows up, just loses it and wipes everybody out. It's a perversion. It's an unbiblical idea about God's wrath. There's the indifference concept. I mean, where God's kind of like the sleepy lion that you see on the, 
National Geographic channel. The, he's just laying there in the sun, twitching his tail, kind of paying little attention to the little lizards running around, maybe jumping on his head here or there or the, the other. He doesn't care what, what they, the lizards do to each other as long as they don't bother him. So God's kind of like up there in heaven and he just leaves us alone here to do whatever we want to do and as long as we don't offend him, he doesn't really care. I think the one that's most prevalent though is the denial idea. Where God's all love and not wrathful at all. He's sugar and spice and everything nice. And Jesus is his best form. He's effeminate and cuddly and never angry and and the Bible says God's wrath is none of those things. It sources God, and I think Paul points that out. He doesn't just say wrath is revealed, but the wrath of God is revealed because divine wrath is not the same thing as your wrath or my wrath. I mean, we hear the wrath of God and we automatically think in terms of how we've seen human wrath unleashed on, on other people. And that's one of the reasons we have such an aversion to it or such a misunderstanding about it. Uh, The man that explodes at another driver and cuts him off. Like the guy who just ran over all of those people in in Wisconsin. Wrath that's in there about whatever's going on in his heart. He finally just lets it loose. That's the idea we have about God. The mother that unloads on her child because they drop their juice cup and spill it everywhere. Just let them have it. And those are all expressions of human wrath, and they're sinful. I mean, think about it. We even have to qualify the word anger. We say righteous anger, because what we normally see in anger is sinful anger. I mean, we have to think hard about what, how is anger righteous, and how can it be righteous, even though anger in and of itself is, is not an immoral thing. But all of God's anger is righteous. You see, human wrath is self-centered. It's vindictive. It focuses on harming the person that that did something wrong to me or irritated me. But, But God's wrath is holy and it's right. God's wrath is not like your wrath. It's methodical. It's righteous. It's justice that's a necessary response toward toward sin. And it will be poured out in full force one day. It's His displeasure with sin. It's not dispassionate. It's not that it lacks emotion. It's indignation, but it's indignation toward wickedness. There are two words used in the Bible for anger. One is thumos, which is where we get words like thermometer or thermos. It's the anger that gets hot which is where, why we use the term for, for thermos. It's the anger that gets hot and then spews all over everyone. It's what overcomes you whenever you lose control. That, that's not the word that, that Paul uses here. It's not the, the thumos of God. It's, it's the other word, the, the orge. It's a, it's a word that means a settled, abiding state. It's a word that means it's controlled, but it's a necessary response to, to something that's harmful. But that's the word that Paul uses here. 
God's wrath is a, is a union between His holiness and His justice. The holiness of, uh, of God and the justice of God come together, and when those two things come together and, and they, they come in contact with sin, what, what happens is, is wrath. In one sense, you can think of it like a byproduct or a reactive outflow. It's what happens when His holiness and His justice encounter sin, and they come together. But it's an attribute. And He wouldn't be God, and He wouldn't be good if He didn't have it. Let me explain. God cannot be God without wrath, because there's sin in the world. Because indifference toward evil is evil itself. I mean, you can't be God and good and see evil and then just say, oh, well, you know, live and let live. That's evil. It would be be wrong for God. God wouldn't be good and He wouldn't be God if if He didn't respond to sin and wickedness with, with wrath. The same for you, by the way. I mean, you can't see evil and take no opposition to it. That's evil in itself. A.W. Pink said, Indifference to sin is a moral blemish, not a virtue. But that's what the world says. Doesn't the world tell you that it's a virtue to just say, Hey, do whatever you want to do? Society says just the opposite of what Paul says here. That's its mantra, live and let live. You let me live however I want to live, and who are you to tell me otherwise? And in fact, you're the one wrong and immoral by telling me that I'm wrong, that there even is a wrong. But that philosophy only works if you're the perpetrator. As one preacher illustrated it like this, if you're a bully that's beating up a weaker person, if you're the bully, you're happy to live and let live. But if you're the one on the bottom of the pile getting pulverized, you want somebody to intervene, don't you? I mean, the person on the street getting robbed doesn't want a police officer who walks by and says, oh, well, live and let live, right? I mean, if you're the robber, you want that. But if you're the one being robbed, you want the police officer to intervene. You see, all the philosophies of the world fall apart at their core because deep down we need a God who judges sin. We need justice. To be true and coming or life is unbearable. I mean, how would, you, how would you live without knowing that in the end evil will pay? That wrongs will be made right, that judgment will, will come. And Paul says, rest assured, with God they will. Because God is good and He's righteous and His holiness and justice responds to evil. And, and what that produces is wrath directed toward, toward sin. And not just sin in general, but it's directed toward those who commit it. The most dangerous thing that you can encounter in this world is not from this world. It's from heaven, and it's God's wrath, Joel James. But thankfully for us, it's not the attribute that God leads with. Isaiah 28, verse 21, makes an interesting statement about God's wrath. See if you can pick it up as you, as you read it here. Isaiah 28, 21, For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim and as in the valley of Gibeon. He will be roused to do His deed. 
Strange is his deed. And to work his work, alien is his work. And this deed that, that Isaiah is talking about is, is God's judgment. He calls it a strange work, which means something that God wields slowly and patiently. It's not a lesser attribute, but something that, that God restrains because of His mercy. I mean, the justice of God demands right, and right requires punishment. But mercy often intercedes and produces patience for when the sentence is carry out, carried out. Mercy doesn't remove the consequence or take away the sentence. The sentence will come. God's appointed today in which He'll judge the world in righteousness. But mercy just, just pushes that out a little bit farther and a little bit farther. So hopefully, maybe, that person would, would repent. And at the moment that they do, the very second that a guilty person repents, the, the forgiveness of God intervenes and, and wipes away the, the, the guilt through Jesus Christ. It's exactly what Peter echoes in 2 Peter 3, 9, For the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. What are the scoffers accusing of God of being slow of there? He's slow in coming in judgment. And Peter says it's not because he's not coming. It's not because he's not wrath. It's not because there's not a judgment coming. But because of God's mercy, he would rather pour out his forgiveness. Which is an echo of exactly how God reveals himself in the book of Exodus. You remember, we've been over this a number of times, but when Moses asked God if, if he can see him, the Lord says, nobody can look on me and live, but I'll tell you what I'll do. When I walk by, you'll be able to see a, my glory, uh, the train of my glory. And when the Lord passes by uh, Moses, he declares something to him. What does God say about himself? I mean, this is probably the most condensed verse in, in all the Bible. And it's from the mouth of God Himself. How will God reveal Himself? What will God say about Himself? Look at what He leads with. Then the Lord passed by in front of Him, that's Moses, and proclaimed. God's proclaiming this about Himself. Who is He? The Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. He's a God of love and a God of mercy and a God of compassion. That, that, that's what he's spring-loaded with. That's the first horse in pulling, pulling his wagon, pulling his train. But, but look at what he follows with. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. God's, God, God leads with His attribute of mercy. He's merciful and forgiving. He's faithful to His promise. But what follows is His attribute of justice and, and wrath. He will not allow sin to go unpunished. He cannot and be God and be good. And he'll visit His wrath on those who disobey Him. That's exactly what Paul says right here in Romans. Remember the gospel? that he's not ashamed of, that he's eager to preach. God's mercy is revealed in that, but, but God's wrath is also revealed against sin. And by adding it's from heaven, it, it's, a, it's a repetition. It adds weight to the, to the source. He, heaven is the throne where God resides. And so uh, this wrath is, is it's rained down from heaven 
just like it did, it, just like it came from heaven upon Sodom, it's, it's raining down now in the same place. And he says, you need to pay attention because God's not neutral. In fact, his wrath is already here. And that's the second reality that's up on your screen. Paul says the second reality about God's wrath is it's experienced wrath. And Paul says it's revealed, it's reserved. Look at verse 18 again. For the wrath of God, not the wrath of man, but the wrath of God, the perfect and good and necessary response of God to sin is revealed from heaven. Now, typically, I think whenever you hear the wrath of God or I hear the wrath of God, don't you automatically think like Revelation <laughs> uh, or Daniel? We hear God's wrath and we think end times, and rightly so. It's coming. And the Old Testament speaks of the day of the Lord, when judgment will come upon all ungodliness. And Listen to the terrifying words of, of Zephaniah describing what's coming at the end, the very end of the age. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a a day of destruction and desolation, a a day of darkness and gloom, a a day of clouds and, and thick darkness a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the high corner towers, because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. That's what's coming at the end. But Paul says here in Romans that God's wrath is already being revealed right now. That's coming in the end, but there's a, there's a wrath of God that's being revealed right now. The, the, the word that he uses here, this, this wrath of God that's being revealed, is in the present tense. Meaning that divine wrath is currently operating in this world. It's, it's not something that, that, that God's just going to unleash in the end. He, he's already letting it out right now. The word means to disclose something, to bring to light. The wrath of God is is brought to light. It's particularly in the lives of people without Christ. Alva J. McLean said, if you look at the Bible, the wrath of God is revealed in three ways. It's revealed in the Bible, like in John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John chapter 3, you have the love of God who gave His only begotten Son, and you have the wrath of God placed side by side. The second way, he said, is the wrath of God is revealed in the cross. It's probably the greatest revelation of the wrath of God in the Bible. In Matthew 27, 46, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No greater revelation than that. On the cross, Christ absorbed the wrath of God that you and I deserved. But the third is what Paul's talking about right here. The wrath of God is revealed in the natural world. 
the wrath that's coming upon mankind right now because they've rejected the witness of the Bible and the historicity of the cross. And, and notice the word revealed here is the, is the same word that's used in verse 17. I think I pointed that out last time. Look at verse 17. For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. In verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So just as the righteousness of God is currently being revealed in the gospel, the wrath of God is currently being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And not only that, when Paul later describes the passages that talk about homosexuality, when he describes the reason for, those wrath, for that wrath in verse 24 and 26 and 28, where God three times says He turned them over, He hands them over, that's in the past tense. He already handed them over. It's something that God's already done, not something that God's going to do in the future. And so the question that you have to answer is, how is God's wrath currently being revealed? What, what wrath has come right now? I, I mean, I kind of know what's coming in the end. I read the book of Revelation, but, but what's, what, what's coming right now? How is God's wrath operating in the world right now? And that's what Paul's going to describe through chapter 3. And verse 18 just says it's here. It's like extreme radiation. Mankind's not always aware of the danger that, that we're in. We're, we're rocking, walking around breathing in, in judgment. How is it revealed right now? How is God's wrath being poured out right now on the earth? It's the, the moral slide and the degradation of human society from the very beginning of the fall until today. That's a manifestation of God's judgment. You can't always see that immediately. You can't always see it operating in your life. You sin and nothing happens. You sin again, nothing happens. And you sin again, and nothing happens. You don't immediately sense and see the consequence that's, that's coming, but over a period of time, the effects, it breaks down lives and society... And Paul says, let me explain what's going on when that happened. It's wrath. It's God's wrath. It's God's judgment. The curse and the fall are God's righteous wrath. Paul says, because of our self-inflicted blindness, we're not always sure of its source. And Paul says, it's God. It's God's right now wrath is being revealed through the consequences of sin that we choose. The consequences of sin are one of the ways that God's judgment is currently being revealed. There's, There's death and the reality of sickness and natural disaster and divorce and murders and drug addiction and diseases and immorality and all of its perversions and homosexuality and AIDS and Darwinism and socialism and communism and racial tensions. Those are all ways God's wrath is being poured out on the, the earth. F.F. F. Bruce said, There is a moral law in life that men are left to the consequences of their own freely chosen course of action. And unless this tendency is reversed by divine grace, their situation will go from bad to worse. That's the story of the world, isn't it? It's going from bad to worse. Who hasn't been to a funeral and watched a 
widow or widower weep and think this is not the way it's supposed to be or, or watch somebody that you love blow through every barrier put in front of them and run headlong into their, their sin only to be devastated by it. That's, that's God's judgment. God's mercy, the barriers that are placed there, don't do it, don't go. But the consequences are one of the ways that God's wrath and judgment is being revealed right now. He brings consequences for our sinful choices if we continue in them. But you also need to listen carefully because you think, well, maybe that's not that bad. God's wrath is also reserved. God's wrath is uh, presently revealed, but it's also presently diluted. It's not His full wrath. It's restrained by His mercy. There's also God's wrath that's coming that's going to be poured poured out in full force one day. Let me illustrate it to you this way. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. What will heaven be like? Well, you and I have no idea. I mean, the best way that we can understand what heaven's like is the foretaste of fellowship that that we get whenever we draw near to God through, through the Holy Spirit. Those moments when you're fellowshipping with God and the Spirit of God is there and your heart is full. But that can't even be compared to the, to the full presence of God when you see Him face to face, can it? The wrath that's being revealed right now in your life is bad, but it's not anything to be compared to the wine press of the, the wrath of God that we pour, poured out in full force one day. I mean, whatever hell you think that you're facing right now, it's incomparable. to the wrath and outer darkness that awaits unmixed and undiluted when it will be poured out in full force (laughs) on the day of judgment. Anyone who does not repent of their sin will face that holy and righteous God on that day. Because whether it's then or now, God's wrath is irrevocably attracted to to sin. Paul says it's earned wrath. Notice verse 18. It's revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against something. It's against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's the, the wrath of God and the unrighteousness of man and Paul now tells us what attracts God's current wrath and the reason for His future wrath that will come. He identifies two objects, every sort of ungodliness and wickedness. He uses two words. C. Hodge says the two terms mean impiety toward God and unjustness toward mankind. It's a a lack of respect for God, ungodliness. Godliness and the unkind, it's ungodly. And then there's a lack of, of justice unrighteousness. It's not right. And when Paul uses them together, they function like synonyms. And notice he says all unrighteousness, all ungodliness of men. Wrath comes from God and ungodliness and unrighteousness comes from you and I. And when you put those together, he's saying that what attracts God's wrath is the full spectrum of human sinfulness. Ungodliness is sin against who God is. Unrighteousness is sin against what God commands, against His will and Some 
think that Paul's hitting the Ten Commandments here. The, the ungodliness would cover the first half of the Ten Commandments and unrighteousness the second half. McLean said man is a religious sinner, he's ungodly, and he's a moral sinner, he's unrighteous. The unrighteous man lives as if there is no law of God, and the ungodly man lives if, as if there is no God. And both of those words lock everyone up and render the verdict of guilty. You see, some people look at their life and say, I'm a good person because I don't do bad things to other people. I'm moral in that way, but, but how have they lived toward God? You, you say, I, I don't lie, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not a thief, I'm not a whatever else, but, but have you worshipped Him who is the one true God and given Him the glory that He desires all day, every day? You see, either you're still guilty. You're guilty of ungodliness. Maybe not unrighteousness in that way. And the reason that Paul mentions ungodliness first is because living without God leads to unrighteousness towards His will. Or as Paul will say in a few verses, they did not glorify Him as God, and that's what leads to their unrighteous acts. And you wonder why our country gets worse and worse, because if you reject God first, then, then why would you care about His moral law? You don't have to look in history very far to see that that's true. What's even worse, though, is even whenever we're told about this, we resist it. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Look at the end of verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul says, instead of these natural consequences turning mankind to God, what mankind does is they suppress the truth. They resist God even further in their unrighteousness. Rather than a consequence coming in your life because of the sin that you committed, rather than that being a witness to you, whoa, I need to change course, I need to take a different direction, we resist and oppose God even further. The word suppressing the truth here, it's not passive, it's active. It's the idea of holding something down, uh, the idea of holding down the truth in unrighteousness. The word suppress means to subdue something, to wrangle it to the ground, to subdue the power of the truth by rejecting what, what you know. So the idea here is that men know there's a God, they know right and wrong, they know the consequences are real, but, but they hold that truth at arm's length and act as if it's not true. Again, Kent Hughes, I think, is very helpful. He says the idea that Paul gives here is like the little boy who smuggles his dog into his bedroom at, at night. And when he hears his parents coming, he, he puts the dog in his toy box and he sets on the lid. And he tries to talk to his parents while ignoring the, the repeated thump of the, of the, the poor pet. And Paul says that's what we do. Men have a continual striving against the truth. Sinners are in the process of holding down the truth. And they know it's there. 
but they put it in a box and they sit on the lid. And at the times when you hear, they hear thumping coming from the box, they just talk louder or intentionally ignore it or they find a new hobby or drink new alcohol or they, they find a new wife or a new job or whatever it is. But Paul says the truth is still in the box. No matter how loud you talk or, or, or how forcefully you, you hold down the lid, the truth can't be changed, but it can be rejected. It can be covered and stifled and held down. And men do that to their peril. Can't you see that around you? People have the evidence of something bigger than themselves and they, they come up with almost mind-numbing ideas of how to explain it away. Can I ask you something this morning? Is, is that what you're doing? You know the truth? The truth something about God, maybe about Christ, maybe you've never come to Him, maybe something about your sin, and it's in the box and you're sitting on the lid. You don't want to let it out, fear, or you, you like it too much. All the current difficulties in the world, all of its consequences, all of its devastating effects of sin, all the realities are, are, are there. So you can pull up before it's too late. And Paul says the, the thumping in the box, it's the hardship in your life, the loneliness that comes because of your sin, the hardness of your heart. It's all truth shouting to you that you need Jesus Christ. So why don't you get off the lid? What's going to come out of the box? It's probably going to be really ugly. It's probably going to be hard. You're probably going to have to confess that you're a sinner. That you've done evil, wicked things to other people. It's probably going to embarrass you. You're probably going to have to humble yourself. But I can promise you this. If you let the truth out of the box, it's true whether you let it out or not. But If you let it out and you look it in the face and you say, Lord, I have sinned. And I need your grace. Uh, I'll no longer suppress it or hide it. I'll come to you with it. I can promise you that whenever you do that, Jesus Christ will take whatever is in that box and he'll nail it to his tree. And that truth will set you free. Four realities about God's wrath. It's divine wrath, it's experienced wrath, it's earned wrath, and it's resisted wrath. And John the Baptist came preaching, repent. And Paul came saying that that wrath is being revealed right now in the corruptions of the world. And the book of Revelation talks about the wrath of the Lamb that's coming. But if you're in Jesus Christ, God has not destined you to wrath. Because Jesus absorbed that Himself. And once you no longer have God's final wrath bearing down on you, then you can... Think right and do right, and then there'll be less and less consequences that are coming in your world. But whatever you do, don't ignore what God is saying about His wrath. Let's pray. Father, I have no idea what you're doing this morning other than proclaiming truth. 
I don't claim to know what's in the hearts of, of people, but I know what's in your heart because you reveal it in your word. And what's in there is holiness and justice and, and a disposition of being against unrighteousness, ours. And what's also in there is love that didn't leave us in that condition, but, but made a way of escape that any who would repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ can be saved. And I pray that that happened this morning. Someone would just get off the lid and let the sin out of the box and allow you to deal with it the only way that you can through the cross. And I pray the same for Christians this morning. They've done that before, but they put something back in there and they, they need to turn loose of it. I pray that you would help them do that. And then as forgiven sinners, I pray that we would live in such a way that would bring you glory and would help others to walk in newness of life. And I ask all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.